Hey there, welcome to episode four of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. Are you someone who starts each morning hitting snooze or ends each night with hours of Netflix? On today's episode, we're breaking down the biology behind sleep, why your body needs it, and how it's related to chronic diseases. While we're at it, we'll bust some of the biggest sleep myths and talk about science-backed ways to improve your sleep habits. All right, let's get after it. Today we are joined by Dr. Kristen Knutson. Dr. Knutson is a biomedical anthropologist and an associate professor in the Center for Circadian and Sleep Medicine and the Department of Neurology and Preventative Medicine at Northwestern University. She splits her research time between investigating associations between sleep health and chronic diseases and sociocultural determinants of sleep health. For the former, she has published work examining links between sleep duration, quality and timing, and cardiometabolic diseases. The latter aligns with her anthropology background with respect to how sociocultural factors interact with physiology to impact sleep health. You can find her on Twitter at KLKNUT. Hi, Dr. Knutson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are really excited about this episode. Um, we think sleep is a, you know, everybody does it. Obviously, hopefully everybody does it. <laughs> Maybe not enough. <laughs> Maybe not enough. Um, so we were we started looking through some of your research and your papers, and one big thing that struck us off the bat was the, this excerpt that's saying circadian rhythm disturbances play important roles in the development and expression of neurodegenerative and cardiometabolic disorders. So that being said, what are our bodies doing in a normal sleep cycle that's important for long-term health that, when interrupted, leads to these chronic disorders? Oh, that's an excellent question. And, and just to be honest up front, I'm not sure we entirely understand all the mechanisms that link impairments in sleep to all of these outcomes. But we know from prior work, particularly experimental studies, that insufficient sleep, so restricting sleep to four or five hours per night, has consequences for our stress response system. We see higher levels of cortisol. Um, we see, you know, a, a shift in the balance between, you know, our sympathetic fight or flight system compared to the other side of our autonomic nervous system. We see a lot of changes in hormones that could impact health, like hormones that regulate your appetite change when you don't get enough sleep. Hormones related to cardiovascular function change. Hormone testosterone drops. So there's a lot of different potential mechanisms that link sleep to a whole wide range of physiological problems. So you mentioned cortisol, and I hear that a lot when we talk about chronic disease and how that relates to long-term health. What is cortisol's relationship to long-term health, and why is that important? Well, so we have a stress response for a reason. So the stress response in and of itself isn't a bad thing. You know, you, you want fight or flight to kick in if you're confronted with a tiger on the quad. But when it becomes problematic is if it's chronically elevated. That's when we start to see consequences for your cardiovascular system. I mean, think about if, you know, if I told you you're about to have a test in an hour that you didn't study for, you know, like, oh, my God, like the, the stress level, just that heart rate that goes up, you know, that your appetite goes down. Like there's a specific physiological response that's protective if you want to get out of there. But you don't want that to continue for the long term. And so cortisol is one of the players, the hormones that's involved in, in, in causing the stress response. And so you don't want it elevated all the time. And you really don't want it elevated all the time if you want to sleep because 
sleeping is not something you do during a fight or flight response. And having high levels of cortisol is gonna impair your ability to sleep well. So if cortisol is part of the modulation process for this, how is bad sleep or lack of good sleep turning cortisol on? Or is that still unknown? Well, it's, it's unknown, but I get a question. I've, I used to get this question more than I get it now, but I used to get when I would present and talk about the consequences of insufficient sleep, I'd have somebody out there say, well, how do you know it's not just a stress response? And my response to that is like, what do you mean just a stress response? Like maybe one of the main mechanisms linking sleep or sleep loss to outcomes is the fact that it triggers a stress response. You know, humans are one of the few animals that can override our, our drive to sleep when we're sleeping. We don't necessarily lay down and go to sleep right away. And there are reasons for that. That's adaptive. You know, if you need to find more food, you need to protect yourself, you don't want to lay down and go to sleep. Um, and so you, our brain may be interpreting sleep loss as a true stressor. Like there's something happening. This is why I'm not sleeping. And so there's some stressor out there, whether I need to find food or I need to fight for my protection. Let's elicit a stress response because we're not getting enough sleep. And so that may be how the body interprets when we don't get enough sleep. So it's almost a question of what comes first, whether it's the bad sleep, the elevated cortisol, and then it becomes somewhat of a cycle. Is that sort of the process? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know where the cycles could start with a bad night's sleep. It could start with a really, you know, elevated stress because of discrimination or other injustices or, you know, really tough course schedule. There's all kinds of things that can precipitate or lead to a sleep problem. But once you're on that cycle, it's going to be self It can be self-perpetuating without some sort of intervention. Are there any sort of interventions that have been found to be successful when it comes to re-implementing good sleep? Or is there something that we can do individually kind of, you know, without an intervention from the outside that helps us get better sleep in the long run? Well, some interventions are self, you know, something self-directed. You know, it doesn't have to be a physician necessarily that, that helps you out. Um, and in fact, I'll tell you that the medical association, if someone were to come in complaining of insomnia, drugs are not the first line of treatment. It's actually something called cognitive behavioral therapy. That is something that is done with a physician um, or trained psychologist to help administer that. But before you get to the full insomnia diagnosis, there are certainly many strategies someone can uh, try to use to see if it helps improve their own sleep at home. We often refer to these strategies as sleep hygiene, but they include things like trying to have a regular bedtime as much as you can because this comes back to your biological clock. If you go to bed about the same time every night, then your brain and your body can anticipate when you need to fall asleep and start preparing for that. If you're going to sleep all around the clock, your brain doesn't know what time it is. It's, it's not gonna know when to go to sleep. Try to keep your bedroom as dark as possible. This is gonna be a tough one, but try not to stare into your smartphone or tablet, especially in the hours or so right before bed because the light that is emitted from those devices suppresses a hormone called melatonin, which we think is important for sleep and, and your biological clock. Avoid alcohol. Well, some people have the idea that alcohol is a sleep aid, but it actually impairs your sleep. If you drink enough of it, you might fall asleep faster, but you won't sleep well that night. Um, avoid caffeine. We've seen effects of caffeine on sleep even six hours before they tried to sleep. So try to keep it in the morning, especially if you're particularly having trouble falling asleep. Exercise is good for sleep. Exercise is good for everything, but it's also good for sleep. Get bright light in the morning when you wake up. So there are a lot of different ways you could try to improve your own sleep and, and look at your own behaviors. Even just being aware of, of your daily behaviors, when you go to bed, when you wake up, just even trying to pay attention um, to your sleep will help you be more cognizant and, and aware of what you're doing. 
So something as simple as making that effort, the conscious effort to improve or just even catalog like what's going on and taking account of, you know, where you're at. Yeah. And it's similar. People use the same advice if you you want to try to watch what you eat is if you keep a food diary. A sleep diary can have the same effect, just sort of watching what you do and, and try to make sure you dedicate enough time to sleep if you, if you can. You have to allow yourself some mistakes in the sense that once in a while you're going to go out late and have fun and that's okay. You know, it's just don't give up if you have a really bad week of irregular sleep or bad sleep practices, you know, just try to get back on track as much as you can. Yeah, as I, I'm someone who really does enjoy his sleep and makes it a priority in my life. That being said, when we were looking through more um, literature and saw that there was this big um, study about sleep myths and like society-wide sleep myths and how true or untrue they are, their effect on public health. And we wanted to kind of talk about a few of these and get your take and see the maybe the background and like the underlying truth behind some of these. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we want, we want to bust the myths about sleep because if you have it wrong, it's going to be hard to get your get a better night's sleep if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. So one of the things that comes to mind and that was listed in the study is that your brain and body can learn to function just as well with less sleep. And that's something that I, I know I've had friends who are like, yeah, I, you know, I only get like five and a half hours, but you know, I, I you know, I adjust just fine. I just, but they're also like having, you know, two venti uh, iced coffees every day and, or they're taking like three naps a day. Like, so there's a lot of like compensatory things that are going on in their lives, but can you kind of just elaborate on that? Yeah, that is a myth. You cannot get used to getting insufficient sleep. At least your reaction time, your ability to process things, your your cognitive function, it's your your glucose metabolism. Like it's not going to get used to it. You subjectively might think you're used to it, uh, but that's not the same thing. And, and and people can be really good at being in denial. People are not good at judging how sleepy they are any more than drunk people are good at judging how drunk they are. It's the same problem. <laughs> driving sleep deprived is the same as driving drunk, and you're no good at it. There was a study at University of Chicago many years ago now where they restricted people's sleep to four hours per night for a week. And they were asked, how are you feeling at, you know, at, towards, at the end of this week? And you had the range of people who said, oh, I'm fine. It's no problem. And you had other people who were just miserable and, and just couldn't stand it. I'd be you. Yeah. I'd be me too. And then they did tests, like little computer tests for their reaction time. And there was no relationship. The people who felt totally fine were not doing any better on the reaction time than the people who were miserable. So they're just not good. People aren't good judges of how much sleep they need. And those are the same people. Yeah, they're drinking three cups of coffee or more per night. They're falling asleep in class. It is not true that boredom makes you sleepy and fall asleep. Boredom just unmasks how sleepy you are because you're not distracting yourself with other activities. So if you're falling asleep in class, it's not the teacher's fault. They may be boring. I'm not saying they're not boring, but the, but it's not their fault you're falling asleep. That's actually really interesting. And I find myself when I have really busy weeks where I am getting less sleep in the duration of that week, you know, when I'm going to work or have a lot of class or have a lot of extra activities, I feel totally fine. You know, I fall asleep almost immediately and I wake up more tired the next morning, but it isn't until I have a second to kind of sit down and rest and, you know, maybe the weekend comes or whatever was keeping me busy is over and suddenly I'm spending three, four, five, six days sometimes even catching up and getting back to myself because once those distractions are gone, I feel 
that lack of sleep that had caught up to me. So the adjustment that people claim, I think, is temporary or it's, it's just this mantra that kind of gets them through it until they realize that they really do need that extra sleep. And they hit a wall. I mean, yeah, it's that anxiety, the, the energy, the stress response that's helping you get through that week of exams or whatever it is. But then when you have a time to just relax, it, it takes time to catch up. I mean, do the math. You know, if you're sleeping two, three hours less per night than you need, and you do that for several nights in a row, you can't just sleep for an extra 15 hours the first night you, you're in bed. It's going to take more time to recover. And the, and the idea that you can sleep deprive yourself five days a week during the work week and then catch it all up in two days, you know, five and two, it doesn't, it doesn't, math doesn't add up. It's, 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 it's a ongoing perpetual problem of so we sleep deprive ourselves. We've talked about now like the, you know, what's too little, how can you catch up or not catch up? What is the actual, just for our listeners out there to make sure we're all on the same page, what's recommended and what's bare minimum with terms of sleep debt as well? Like, is that something you can recoup in as many days as you were sleep deprived or how does that work as well? Well, so in terms of how much a person needs, obviously it's going to be a little bit individual, just like we vary in height, we like we vary in our sleep need. But given that it's not, you know, there's, there's nobody out there who's 11 feet tall. And so there's nobody out there who can get by in one hour per night. You know, there's a couple of papers out there that where the experts got together and came up with recommendations. And for adults, it varies by age. Younger people need more sleep, kids, infants. But for adults, young adults, up to older adults, it's between, say, seven to eight hours is the best. Six to seven may be fine for some people, but not for other people. More than eight may be fine for some people, but it might be if you're sleeping too much could be a sign that there might be a problem. So less than six is unlikely to be sufficient for the majority of people sleeping less than six hours. As we get older, one of those myths that was in the paper is that older people need less sleep. We don't really believe that's true. We just think due to comorbidities or health problems or other issues, they get less sleep. But that's not the same thing as actually needing less sleep. And then your other question was, oh, how much does, we don't know. You know, that's a hard study to do, to sleep deprive people for five, six, seven days and then extend their sleep and figure out how long does it take you to make up for how much you lost. And, you know, there was a study out there from University of Chicago as well that took people who were normal, healthy sleepers to begin with, sleep deprived them for five days, I think. And then after a couple of days, they seemed to be okay. But that assumes that you're fully sleep deprived until that five days of sleep restriction. But if you're doing that five days every week because of work, those two days are probably not going to be able to keep compensating. So something that was mentioned in the same publication with all the myths mentioned naps. And one thing that immediately comes to mind is in Spain, there is a designated rest hour siesta each day. And the whole entire country shuts down for a little bit. And that is just part of their culture, part of the routine. Everybody follows it. And we obviously don't have something like that in the United States or really elsewhere in the world, as far as I know. What is your opinion on that? And are naps just generally a good way to compensate for lack of sleep in the long run? The idea of napping in the afternoon, it actually matches. If you were to look at your 24-hour biological rhythm of alertness, you see this dip in the afternoon. And so this does seem to be some biological pressure for a nap in the afternoon. It's not just what you have for lunch. It's like it's there no matter what. And so it seems like Spain and other siesta cultures seem to be modeling their behavior after that rhythm. And also in a lot of parts of the world, that's when it's the hottest too. So it's best to be inside where you, if you can stay cool. And then their evening activities tend to be later as a result. Naps can be good. We, we've seen some work shows that a nap 
especially if it's not too long, can sort of recover some of your performance ability during the day. Not as much work to see if it can help compensate for sleep loss in relation, say, cardiovascular or metabolic disease risk. But a nap is unlikely to be harmful unless you're doing it too close to bedtime because then it'll be harder to fall asleep. The reason I said the nap shouldn't be too long is if you've ever taken a long nap and you woke up and you're like really groggy and you're like, what is happening? There's a term for that, sleep inertia, and, and you want to avoid sleeping so long that you go into the deep non-REM stage of sleep because when you wake up from that, it, you're not fully alert right away. And if you're in a job, for example, where you, when you wake up, you need to be alert right away, then, then taking long naps can be detrimental. I don't remember where I read this, so I have absolutely no source to back this up, nor do I know if it's actually true. But I read somewhere that if you are napping, it's best to nap in eight-minute intervals. And for whatever reason, those eight-minute intervals somehow match up with the cycles of sleep that the brain goes through. I'm not sure if that's true at all. I don't know if you have any knowledge of that or if you have any idea how our sleep rhythms go. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, so- no, I, do, I don't know that one. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, it must be related somehow to cycles. But I mean, we go through... You know, sleep can be broken down into non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, and rapid eye movement sleep, and then non-REM can be broken down further into three categories. But it takes more than eight minutes to get through them. So I, I, I sorry, I don't know the eight-minute thing comes from. So additional myth busted. Perhaps rather than <laughs> read the paper, I don't know who wrote it, so I don't want to get in trouble. Maybe real, I just don't know. It. Yeah. So you know, we talked about caffeine potentially interrupting sleep and looking at your phone right before bed being problematic possibly. If we have difficulty falling asleep, there's you know, the myth that it's best to stay in bed and try to fall back to sleep. Can you kind of walk us through that? Because that seems almost counterintuitive. I feel that like if I'm sitting in bed for five, 10 minutes, can't fall asleep yet, like I'm just gonna just keep laying there. Maybe like roll over, grab a new pillow, flip it over, make it a nice cool side of the pillow. I mean, I do that too. Like, I'm not going to get up right away. But it's part of actually the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia idea is that if you're lying in bed trying to sleep but can't sleep, that's not always a positive experience. And if you're getting anxious or upset because you can't fall asleep, it's going to make it even harder for you to fall asleep. So the idea is you get up. Don't, you know, don't start staring at the screen again. You know, don't go watch anything too anxiety-provoking. But try to relax, maybe some reading of a book old school. And then once you start feeling sleepy, then you go back to bed and try it. But the idea is like lying in bed, staring at the clock or trying not to stare at the clock, you know, makes it much harder to fall asleep. It's, it's, you want to be relaxed and ready to fall asleep um, when you're in bed. And if you're having trouble falling asleep, the idea is to get back up and try and wait until you feel sleepy again, rather than toss and turn. Totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. I think when I have trouble falling asleep and I'm sitting there thinking about how I need to fall asleep, especially when there's something big the next day, I feel like those nights tend to be some of the most difficult. When you need the most sleep is when you get the least sleep. But the more I sit there and I think about how important it is for me to fall asleep, the more my brain is waking itself up. Yeah. So it's it's this really vicious cycle. And something that I found helps me, and again, I'm actually curious to hear what the official opinion is on this. Does music help fall asleep? I know a lot of people like nature sounds, like the rain falling or the whooshing of leaves. Yeah, no, they can. Yes, they can help people fall asleep, as long as you find it relaxing and not annoying. Cool. You know, I'll get asked, oh, I hear chamomile tea. I should drink chamomile tea to fall asleep. And I'll ask the person, like, well, do you like chamomile tea? It's like, no, it's disgusting. I'm like, well, then no, you shouldn't drink chamomile tea. I mean, it has to be something you find relaxing. So that, so bedtime rituals can actually be very helpful for, for falling asleep, but it, but they're personalized. It's got to be something you find relaxing that helps you mark the, your, you and your body and your brain 
mark the transition from, okay, my awake day to sleep, like that gradually winding down. And it's gotta be something that works for you. So white noise machine, listening to music, all of those things can help you make that transition. I know we talk about bedtime rituals for infants and young children, but adults should use them too. But again, it can't be annoying. Like my husband has a white noise machine where there's one sound that just drives me insane. I think it's like a cricket. Like why would anybody want to listen to that? But for some people, maybe that is what they want to listen to. So if, if it works for you, I just, with music, you want to make sure it's not on a playlist or something where it's going to suddenly switch to hard rock in the middle of the night and wake you up. So as long as it either turns off automatically or stays as a, something soothing and gentle. I've made that mistake before. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than getting woken up to a really intense song at like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so one other like MythBuster thing, I guess that you know came to mind recently is that I remember reading a few years ago that if you try and relax your face, just try to like let all the muscles in your face kind of go limp, that that helps relax the rest of your body and helps you fall asleep. Is there any truth to that? Any research that's been done on that or? Well, again, I think it comes to whatever is going to help relax you and, and transition you from wake to sleep is going to work. So for some people that might not work because it makes them feel foolish or they just aren't comfortable. But if somebody else has set up a ritual that has this step-by-step, because I've read similar things like where you sort of concentrate on relaxing your body and, and, and moving down, then that might help some people to fall asleep. It's all about, again, winding down and relaxing and, and avoiding anxiety about trying to fall asleep. True. It's funny that you bring that up. There was something that I read in not an article, not a published scientific paper or anything like that, but it was in some sort of book that I had been reading. And what they had mentioned was that if you have trouble falling asleep, sometimes there's unnoticed tension in your body. Sometimes you don't realize that you're clenching certain muscles or that you're holding a lot of tension in certain areas of your body as you lay in bed. So it helps if you kind of start at your toes and squeeze those muscles and create tension and then let it go slowly and you work that up your body and it helps you realize where you're holding tension and it helps you let it go. So you kind of work, you know, from your head to toe or feet to head or whichever order makes most sense for you. Again, I guess it's personalizable, but it helps you let go of all the physical tension you have in your body. So I've actually used that a couple of times and found that it was actually pretty helpful. The other advantage of that kind of behavior is as you're concentrating on relaxing, if that's a thing, um, it sort of distracts you from what might be keeping you up otherwise. If you can think through that, rather than thinking about, I gotta fall asleep because I have an exam tomorrow, it, it has that added benefit. It's relaxing you and it's also keeping your mind on that instead of the things that might be keeping you awake. Yeah, that's that's kind of what my method behind the madness was, was that it helped take my mind off of whatever it was that was keeping me up. And then it was relaxing because I tend to hold a lot of tension in like my upper body when I go to sleep. So it helped me kind of let that go. So that was kind of a cool self-discovery. I should probably start writing down where my sources are from because twice now I've mentioned something and have no idea where it came from, but. <laughs> but you're right. There is, you know, actually my colleague here at Northwestern, Jason Ong, wrote the book on mindfulness-based uh, therapies for insomnia. So it's the same idea that using more mindful, mindfulness type meditation activities can help people improve their sleep and be able to fall asleep better. We'll have to do an episode on that. We will. One thing that we like to ask everybody we have on the show is, how'd you get into sleep research? Like what, what drew you to it? I have two answers to that. The first short answer is I like sleeping. You know, I'm not a short sleeper. So I was interested in that, but it was also nice to have a validation for if I don't want to be at a meeting at 6 a.m., it's not going to happen and nobody cares. But my background is unusual, I think, for a lot of scientists, or at least faculty down here in the School of Medicine, perhaps, in that my bachelor's is in English literature. In, from McGill. So Chicago is the warmest place I've ever lived because I'm from Fargo, North Dakota. 
you know, after I graduated with my bachelor's, I wasn't really sure what to do next. So I moved to Chicago and I was taking classes at Northwestern and I was working at Northwestern and took some anthropology classes and some biology classes. But while I was here, my job was secretary to the chair of the neurobiology and physiology department. And at the time, the chair was Fred Turek, who is a sleep and circadian researcher in animal models. Now, at the time, I thought, okay, this is a job, you know, but I learned about writing grants. I learned about sleep and circadian science because I helped with grants and helped with his classes. And then I went off to graduate school in anthropology to study biomedical anthropology with an interest in urban health. But, you know, I, I learned about sleep and circadian science and I came back to work with him for a summer because as an anthropology grad student, I get no financial support. And he said, well, who in anthropology studying sleep? And I said, well, that's a really good question. And at the time, there really weren't that many anthropologists, which is unusual because in anthropology, we say there are very few human universals. We live, we die, we breathe, we mate, and we sleep. And yet, very few anthropologists were studying sleep at the time. So I decided to shift my focus to sleep because I had been a secretary in that department for that person before I went off to graduate school. And then I, here I am back in the question again. I came, I came home. <laughs> That's actually a really interesting backstory, and I think it is always incredible in science and research and medicine to meet people with different backgrounds than the standard. I'm one of those people with the standard backgrounds, <laughs> but I think it always adds so much more interest to the field when people bring in those different perspectives. So it was awesome to hear your perspective on sleep, and I personally am a really big fan of sleep. In fact, I think I might go take a nap for better or for worse after this episode is done recording. But thank you so much for being on the show today. I learned a lot and I thought a lot of those myths were true myself. So I feel much more knowledgeable and ready to make better sleep decisions going forward. So thank you. Good. Well, thanks for having me. I love talking about sleep and busting myths when I can. That was quite an informative interview, and I know I learned a lot and really enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. Well, that puts a cap on this episode's interview, but we do have another segment for y'all. Silly Science, back at it again. Round two. My favorite. I'm so excited. All right, Liv. So this Silly Science comes to you from a 2016 article from the British Medical Journal. Ooh entitled sniffing out p values now this is p values p-e-e like urine oh sniffing out significant p values genome-wide association study of asparagus ad nauseum okay first of all brownie points for the clever title i love that i love me a good clever title second of all what does that even mean so p value just shows the significance of the outcome of a study if you will and the smaller the p-value, the less likely the difference between treatment group A or control group B is happening by chance. So that's p-values. Genome-wide association study. Okay, so to try and break it down succinctly, they take, so genome-wide association study will take a genome and look for these SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. And the easiest way to break this down is that our entire DNA has like four puzzle pieces. And those puzzle pieces are arranged in different orders. And at a certain spot in the genome, there are more or less common puzzle pieces that occur there. And if you have enough different puzzle pieces from the normal, whatever the normal is, 
at a certain spot in your DNA. It'll show up on these genome-wide association studies. So we're basically taking the human genome, all however many billions or millions of base pairs there are, and mapping out where we tend to differ the most. Because it turns out that most human genomes are extremely similar, and we only differ at a couple spots, and those small differences are enough to cause the physical and phenotypic differences we see in real life. So genome-wide association study, or a GWAS, will basically let you physically point out and map out where those differences occur and helps us relate them to diseases or functions in our bodies. Absolutely. Well put, Liv. Asparagus anosmia. So if you ever have had asparagus after you have it, you know your, your pee smells kind of weird, right? Are you sure that's not a you thing? You'd be surprised that I'm in the minority here. I don't know if it's surprising, but I'm in the minority. Asparagus anosmia is essentially the inability to smell. Whenever you break down asparagus and it, ha- it gives off that weird scent in, in your urine, only certain people have the ability to, to do this. Oh. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. So this GWAS study was a study of over 6,900 men and women of European-American descent. And they found that the majority of men, 58%, and women, 61.5%, had asparagus anosmia. There were 871 hits on this GWAS study. So 871 of these SNPs reached the significant value. And the p-value is actually pretty low to reach significance. Um, something like 5 times 10 to the negative 8th. And they all happen to be in a region on chromosome 1 that contains multiple genes in the olfactory receptor 2 family. So probably something with having or not having a certain protein or enzyme of some sort in this um, olfactory receptor 2 family determines whether or not you can smell a difference in your pee after you eat asparagus. Nice. Can you imagine writing that paper (laughs) and having to do that study? So... To answer your question, no, I, I can't. That just seems, it seems so silly. It, so that's why, it's, that's why I thought it was perfect for silly science. I mean, it is a really interesting application of genomics. Normally you hear about genomics in such a extravagant setting, you know, CRISPR, we're going to edit genes and we're going to, you know, design our babies and do all these crazy things and get rid of cancer and fix humanity. But we're also going to tell you whether or not you can smell asparagus in your pee and which proteins do it. You're welcome. I smell a Nobel Prize and asparagus. Can you smell asparagus? I can. I can. I can too. Actually, that's my talent. <laughs> that is also one of the very few talents I have. <laughs> but so I actually learned in like finding this article that British Medical Journal and I think others as well. This is in their holiday issue that they put out kind of like more lighthearted, not necessarily funny, but like maybe witty or like punny types of journal articles. I love that. Yeah. That's what we would do. So, you know, when we had our lab meetings, when I was in the Mead lab at Northwestern, we would do lit review days every, I think every month. And, you know, each person would present an article and talk about why it was important and how it was relevant to the greater scope of the lab or the field that we were working in. But around Christmas season, we would do holiday lit. And it was basically the same same deal. We would find something kind of funnier and more lighthearted. So that's kind of cute. Yeah, very 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 fun well thank you for sharing i feel like the average person maybe (laughs) you know it's not the most practical article but hey you'll find out whether or not you're in the majority or the minority here of people who can or cannot smell the difference in their urine after they eat asparagus which is so profound i'm i'm so thrilled to learn this truly a a game-changing discovery made here 
Well, I think that's about all for this week's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. Be sure to tune in to episode five coming out October 5th. And remember y'all, peace, love, and science.